You're listening to Don't Waste Water. From an investment standpoint, water is still less than 1% of all climate venture investments, and that's an issue. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. We wanted something like Imagine H2O, we just didn't know it existed. Something that could be about entrepreneurship, innovation, and hope. And that's what brought us to Imagine H2O. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Scott Bryan as my guest. When I get on our judging calls, I'm always impressed to see you know, people that maybe sometimes compete in the market actually working together, looking at a new solution and thinking about how do we help this entrepreneur win. Scott is the president and first employee of Imagine H2O. Is it smart money or not? I think that's one up for debate. I do think, again, you know, back to our earlier days, we did see some impact investors come in and they were just so excited to do a water deal that you saw valuations that didn't necessarily benefit the founder or the investor. Imagine H2O is the leading water innovation accelerator and ecosystem for water, empowering people to develop and deploy innovation to solve water challenges globally. There are some common traits among the about 100 guests that appeared on that microphone. I could name their grit, their passion for water or their generosity when it comes to sharing their wisdom. But beyond all of that, there is a common agreement that in the light of the challenges our world has to face, we need innovation and new technologies to support our water projects. The problem is that usually the next sentence, once you've said innovation is needed, is to remind everyone of how difficult it is to promote a new tech in the water industry, not to say barely impossible. This is why we need exceptional support for that technology to strive in a hopefully near future. Nowadays, that support can come in many shapes and we just explored one of those last week with John Robinson and his Mazarin Ventures impact investing approach. Yet, so far, I had somehow missed the elephant in the room in that podcast series. The historical and first player on that stage, which is, you would have guessed, Imagine H2O. In a minute, Scott will reveal how Imagine H2O came to life, how it pivoted over time, how it further developed with its additional paths, and what's in it for the future while reviewing its not-for-profit approach. Yet, the fascinating element here, in my humble opinion, is how an entire industry forgets for a minute who's competing with whom to dedicate to growing the new wonder kids. Some of Imagine H2's alumni may sound familiar to the most loyal listeners, like Typhoon Treatment, Pure Affinity, Storm Harvester, AquaCycle, 120 Water or Epic CleanTech, and if you missed one of these stories, I'll link them in the show notes. Are you ready to hear about a different future for water? Well, while you buckle up, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help me up tremendously by sharing that content around you. Please tell your friends, colleagues or LinkedIn network what you found inspiring in what Scott shares today. And if you don't like what you hear, please reach out to me and tell me what I should be doing differently or better. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Antoine. Great to be here. So actually, we have so much on the plate that you, you wanted to have it really launched before it was launched. So it is really a good mood and a good energy. So I really praise that. And there's a lot we will discuss today because, I mean, everywhere was looking around internet to prepare for that discussion you were listed as the leading water innovation accelerator. So I'm really looking forward to this, this view of the market and this view of the ecosystem from the guy who leads the leading water innovation accelerator. But that all starts with our good old traditions on that microphone of the postcard. And um, basically, I'd like you to tell me something about a place which I wouldn't know by now, 
And that's your postcard. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere right now, just back from Singapore International Water Week. We had just a fabulous time working with our partners and startups there. But yeah, after a, a plane ride to another part of the world back home, I'm actually in Bozeman, Montana right now, where it's springtime. We've got a lot of snow in the mountains, and we're really hopeful about the summer and hopefully it won't be too smoky. But Imagine H Show, we're based in San Francisco. I've lived there for the past you know, nearly 20 years and certainly thinking a lot about the drought that they all are experiencing and, and certainly uh, looking forward to seeing how we can be helpful to our partners there. So that's really something I'd like to explore with you over the next hour. Imagine H2O to go into the details and everything you do about it. But right before, I'd like to get to know you a bit better. And when I was reviewing your path, I saw that you started your career in ESG research and and that sounded like something really visionary by the time you were involved in that. Am I really the layman here or was it visionary? Yeah, I was really fortunate to get into that space in the early 2000s uh, when it was really making this interesting transition from being about socially responsible or values-based investing to ESG. And, and I think it was great timing in the sense that at that time, institutional investors were really starting to see these trends as they related to long-term value creation and risk. It's kind of crazy to think that at the time, it was really finding management teams that at least acknowledged the science of climate climate change. And, and I think we've made some progress on that. But also looking at board diversity, LGBTQ, hiring issues, other labor issues. So it was a fascinating time. But I, I think on the climate side, especially having a front row seat, working with pension funds and foundations that were engaging in shareholder activism, screening for management teams that didn't yet acknowledge climate science, but then also being proactive around clean tech investments, um, both on the venture side, but also project finance. So that's really where I started my career. But it was really in that context that water seemed like an, a logical area for <laughs> long-term risk management and opportunity. Yet it really wasn't receiving the same attention as renewables and other parts of the clean tech se sector. and really didn't have the vibrant ecosystem that one might expect for an industry of this size and prominence to both humanity and, and the earth. You, you're saying it, it didn't get the same attention. So does that mean that by now it gets the same level of, of attention? <laughs> I think we're still working on it and that's what we're all about. But yeah, I, I think from an investment standpoint, water is still less than 1% of all climate venture investments. And that's an issue that will change. Don't necessarily think that water always fits the venture model. And I think that that's something that we've learned as an organization, but certainly at the, the corporate level and even utilities that are now racing to net zero, that water solutions, I think, are getting a lot more attention. I think the challenge, though, the solutions are often complex, or they sit in the back of a wastewater treatment plant, and no one ever sees them. It's not a solar panel on your roof, or a Tesla in your driveway, or a windmill on the hill. These solutions can be complex, and how do we demystify them and get larger audiences of people to understand what water innovation is and what's possible. I guess that's exactly what, what you do with Imagine H2O. I'd like to go to the roots of that story, because actually you were the first employee, if, if I'm right, of Imagine H2O. So what's the story be behind that? How do you get to be that first employee? And maybe <laughs> for the two guys in the water industry which don't know Imagine H2O yet, what's your mm -hmm. elevator pitch to Imagine H2O? Well, really, Imagine H2O got its start at Harvard Business School, and it was Tam and Peckett and Matt Evans who were on our board that founded the idea, and they were working with a professor on you know, what kinds of resources would be necessary for innovation and, and startups in the sector. And again, comparing it to other industries that they saw. I just happened to link up with them through a couple different <laughs> routes. Uh, I was in San Francisco again at the time. I was working at Royal Bank of Canada, and we had just launched a philanthropic initiative called the Blue Water that was looking to support water solutions. And we had done a lot of early work with traditional water NGOs, but we wanted something like Imagine H2O, we just didn't know it existed. Something that could be about entrepreneurship, innovation, and hope. And that's what brought us to Imagine H2O when we actually underwrote the organization for its first three years. I was on a volunteer team helping launch the organization with Tam and Matt. And we actually did an executive search. We were looking for someone to lead the organization happened to be 2009 when the financial world was was changing pretty rapidly. And I thought, gosh, if we're not finding the right person, I think I might be that person for the job and uh, the rest is history. So it's been a really 
fascinating ride, certainly a learning experience to build a new organization in this space. How would you define Imagine H2O today? Definitely as a, a water innovation accelerator. That's the core of what we do. But I think we really evolved the model a bit. So it goes beyond purely recognizing a company. I mean, our, our first few years, we were a business plan competition. We then just saw the winners turn around and leverage the judges, our staff, even our interns to find investors and customers. So there was a quick pivot toward the accelerator model, but still operating under the assumption that the problem was the lack of investment in the space. And that's where we really focused on building a track record with investors. Since then, our alumni have collectively raised over 800 million in early stage investment. So I, I think we really proved our ability to be effective there. But over time, we saw investors come back to us and say, well, who's actually using this stuff? Why is the customer adoption piece taking so long? So it's really been the last five or six years that we've really focused on building out a, a network of tech adopters in the municipal, industrial, and agricultural markets that really serve as a, a platform of warm leads or entities that are willing to pilot new solutions. So I wouldn't say we've solved the customer challenge in water altogether, but I think we've really made some great progress as far as creating a place where an entrepreneur can come, get their idea validated, connect with investors, and really benefit from all that we have to offer as an accelerator in the form of capacity development, visibility, and insight. I'm not the, the biggest specialist there is of accelerators, for sure not. It's, it's a topic we've been discussing on that microphone sometimes, like with, with Kimberly Baker, with Gaetan Susne, a bit more recently with John Robinson. I'm just wondering, to me, you seem to have a quite special approach to that because you're a non-profit and because you don't take equity in the companies. Yeah. Is it special or is it me which is wrong with that? And, and if it is special, why did you decide for that model? We were structured as a nonprofit really from the get-go and saw that our work was going to be bigger than simply accelerating startups, but really identifying the challenges and looking at the opportunities to solve them. And we just started with the entrepreneurial piece, but we certainly understand that there's ties to policy, public awareness, and storytelling. There's a lot that we can be doing as an organization, and hence the name Imagine H2O. But in the entrepreneurial space, yeah, I think we, we've been unique in the sense that we were a very early mover and that we've not taken an equity model. That's allowed us to partner with a lot of municipalities that are often the major buyers of solutions, but also the ones that face the most challenges and sometimes political scrutiny. So if we can be a partner to them and remove any conflicts of interest, we're not a consulting firm or nor are we a fund, that really enables us to maintain this neutral convener status. And I think that gives us a fascinating advantage point in the sense that we're kind of at this nexus between entrepreneurship, investment, philanthropy, and the public sector. I don't want to push you in, in a corner. I mean... I get the big picture. I'm just wondering who brings the money in the game? Because you're a nonprofit, right? But you still need to be sustaining what you do. So, mm -hmm. what's the, I mean, business model doesn't really apply as you're a nonprofit, but what's the way all of that works? Yes, we're a nonprofit, and the business model is impact and outcomes. So, a good portion of our funding comes from philanthropies. Oftentimes, these are families that have a, a passion for these issues and are doing a lot of grant making on the water conservation and access side and view us as being complementary to that approach. And sometimes we're even a toolbox to their grantees. On the corporate side, we partner with the likes of Xylem, Suez, Kubota, Curita, Tetratech, all of which view us uh, in a way as kind of a partner to their open innovation teams. So we're early eyes and ears on the ground that's, again, acts as a filter, but really brings people together. And I think that, again, because there's not one single corporate entity that kind of controls everything we do, we are that platform solution that in some cases, peers or competitors are, are partnering on. So when I get on our judging calls, I'm always impressed to see you know, people that maybe sometimes compete in the market actually working together, looking at a new solution and thinking about how do we help this entrepreneur win? And what are these typical entrepreneurs which you help? What was a terrible way to, to phrase it? Who are they? Uh, what kind of companies do you help? 
I think the fun part of our job has been to find those entrepreneurs that are entering from outside the sector that bring talent and know-how from renewables or biotech or big data. That's, I think, some of the really rewarding work. But we also worked with serial entrepreneurs that have founded other companies and and bring that experience. Uh, And then there's certainly people that have been in the water industry and and, and, played prominent roles within large corporates, but see an opportunity to do something on their own. So it's really kind of a, when I think about the human capital and kind of talent piece of our work, that's where I, I really get pretty excited. Over time, we probably moved later stage. When we first started, again, it was a business plan competition. So we even had you know, pre-revenue campus ideas, uh, submitting their ideas, WaterSmart software. Rob and Peter submitted their draft business plan to Imagine H2O. That was their early indicator of, hey, this is a go. But I think over time, we probably moved more towards early revenue companies that have some kind of technology, at least a prototype. And I think that we're probably more of a scale-up program for those kinds of entrepreneurs. But I I don't want to move too far from our roots. And even with our program in Singapore, we offer clinic programming to help those kinds of pre-revenue ideas. And I think we'll do more of that because I think it's really important. You can't simply be looking at kind of early and kind of growth stage companies in this space. You've, you've got to, again, kind of prime the pump and be thinking about how we bring new talent and ideas in. And how long is your involvement with those companies? Our accelerator programs are typically 10 to 12 months long, but we're now finding that we've got some repeat customers. So companies like Century or Drinkwell that have gone through all three Imagine H2O programs, our accelerator, Imagine H2O Asia, and the Urban Water Challenge. So there are times where we'll work with a company over, I think with Minaj at Drinkwell, probably worked with him over off and on for the past six or seven years, always at kind of the right time for him based on the program that we offer. You're an accelerator and you can change the path of those companies. And I do get that you, you have a special network to, to make it happen. And I'd like to go mm-hmm. a bit deeper into that in a minute. But right before, I'd like to understand a bit the timelines because I had the discussion on the microphone with Paul O'Callaghan, who wrote his thesis mm-hmm. about the dynamics of water innovation. And he was able to show that it takes 12 to 16 years for technology to be in the middle of the market. And then very concretely, I had Andrew Benedict on that microphone discussing how Zinnan took off from the early start in the 80s to the moment where they were in the middle of the market, which is late 90s to to 2000s. It seems to me that even if you have the the best technology in that very specific market that the water industry is, it really takes a while and a lot of dedication. And we're discussing decades before you see a major dent. Mm -hmm. Can you bend that? And how can you differentiate between resilience to an idea and a commitment to execute it and pushing a dead body? I totally agree with Paul and Andrew on those timeframes. And we need to be realistic with all those, all who are involved. And I think sometimes people ask us what differentiates a you know a successful entrepreneur from one that doesn't succeed in this space. And you know, oftentimes I find myself talking about the founder and the team and their understanding of those time horizons. We certainly work with entrepreneurs that just get impatient and move on. And I think that's a healthy thing that has to happen. But I think in our own work and how do we really bend the arc, if you will, and shorten these timeframes, this is where I'm pretty optimistic more on our, our work to actually fund pilots. We provided over 1.4 million in funding to pilots in 16 countries in the last few years. and. One, that removes the financial barrier that a lot of utilities will say, hey, we don't have the money to do this. Well, if you remove that, then it's pretty amazing how quickly things can happen. And beyond that, we funded $1.4 million, but the recipients of those funds have then gone on to secure over $7 million in follow-on funding. So everything that we do, it really kind of comes with or it starts at where can we be that catalytic you know, player in this space? But then how do we align with and find partners who can provide that follow-on funding? So I think that's one area where I think we can move things faster. But I would say a lot of our work is trying to help entrepreneurs get to yes or no and encouraging, again, the entire sector to be better at that because we can't afford to have (laughs) to string a lot of people along or nor can we just be patient and say, well, water's conservative. This takes a long time. We really need to be realistic about 
what the solution is, who the team is behind it, and can this be something that is really going to be valued in the market over time? In, in the figures which you showcase on, on your website, I saw that you have an 80% survival rate across your, yeah. if I'm right, 168 companies in portfolio. And I'm wondering, is that good or bad news? Yeah, that's great question. And I sometimes say, well, there's an asterisk on that because I, I do think sometimes entrepreneurs hang around a little longer than they should in the in this space. And I would say there there's a percentage of our companies, and I think we've gotten better at identifying them early and avoiding them, where they can go from paid pilot to paid pilot. And it becomes more of a lifestyle business for the founder rather than a true growth opportunity. So I think we learned our lessons early on there, but I think we've gotten better about identifying companies that have real commercial viability. And I think a lot of this is done partly in, in thanks to a lot of the judges and people that volunteer their time that bring that expertise. So I, I think we've got a great selection process, but, but then couple that with a really strong accelerator program. And, and that's how you get to that number, which, you know, by the way, is essentially consistent with most accelerators in Silicon Valley. So when we think about our peers outside the water space, I think it says that we're doing something right. I do think we could probably start to take more risk and not be afraid to see that number decline. Because I think, again, that's what we all need. <laughs> we need to be trying things and be thinking bigger than we have in the past. But I think right now, I'm very pleased with that track record that we've been able to build over 12 plus years. I found a figure of the uh, the amount of venture money that went into water tech in 2021, because 2022 isn't over yet. And that was yeah. $470 million dollars. And, and on that same microphone, I had uh, Reinhard Hübner share how, according to his vision of the market, I mean, what, what he's seeing every day, uh, there's too much stupid money chasing too few yeah. good targets, to quote him. Yeah. How can you filter that? Is a stamp saying Imagine H2O on, on, on a company something which tells investors that it's a safe bet? Or do you have that role in, in the market of a catalyst at all? Ooh, yeah, we really help entrepreneurs navigate a very complex investor landscape. And I think because these solutions are so localized or specific to a particular market, there's not going to be one investor that is successful at being a resource to a founder across the board. So I think that helping entrepreneurs find the right capital is a role that we can play just in the form of us building out our investor network. But that's not our role to say, hey, investor, this is you know, this is our take on this company. That's where I think we let the market do its its part. But I think to that point, um, agreed, last year, I think we were about 40% of that number. So our alumni definitely continue to raise more and more. And I think that there is more capital available. Is it smart money or not? I think that's one up for debate. I do think, again, you know, back to our earlier days, we did see some impact investors come in and they were just so excited to do a water deal that you saw valuations that didn't necessarily benefit the founder or the investor. So I do think that we need investors that can share the tough facts with the founder as far as expectations and, and numbers. But I do think that there's better entrepreneurships across the board. I think we're seeing a higher quality of entrepreneur but also a higher quality of investor in the space. And I would point to, I think, again, kind of the arc that we've been on is this in the sense that, you know, we've really moved away from being an industry of tinkerers to one of entrepreneurs. I think we've gotten better about that. But I also think the investment community has also had to evolve. So that's one end of the story. The other end of the story is what you mentioned with your, your tech adopters. And uh, we've been alluding to the fact that this industry is quite conservative. So I'm wondering, in a quite conservative industry, where do you find tech adopters which say, hey, Imagine H2A is knocking at my door and, and bringing me a new company. And for sure, I trust them. Let's do a pilot. Let's do something. Again, I think that network is really, again, built to get entrepreneurs to yes, no faster. And having a diverse network of end users that believe in entrepreneurship, but also understand the limits. I would say that, again, it's important to remember that water is a theme, not an industry. And some industries are going to move faster than others. And I don't think we can always assume that the fragmented and conservative nature of the market that we see is always going to be true. And I think that 
whether it be in food and bev or companies that are find themselves operating in a more regulated environment, there will be different timelines for adoption. And I'm hopeful, but I, again, I can't say I'd point to one industry that's able to move faster than others as far as water adoption. I think food and bev has been a great partner to a lot of entrepreneurs we work with, but these are very localized solutions and, and a major food and bev com- company might manage its facility in one region very different than another region. So finding one water solution that can be rolled out across an entire enterprise is difficult and, and not always realistic. There's quite a lot to unpack in, in what you said. I would say I, I see two follow-up questions. The first is s- simply can you give us some example of those tech adopters and, how, and what they, they commit to? And, and second, when you mentioned food and bev, wouldn't it make sense at some point to narrow a bit the, the water industry, which you mentioned is, is not an industry, it's a team, and, and to say, let's go to, to some specific verticals and, and let's sure that we take all the challenges in those verticals and we explore them and, and we, we find the right companies for those right challenges. Our, our tech adopters are leaders generally across the municipal, industrial and agricultural sectors. And they commit to uh, meeting with our entrepreneurs when there's a fit. We're not going to force an awkward marriage. We really want some impactful outcomes. I think in the municipal space, uh, partners like EB Mud or Metropolitan Water District have really been active in piloting our solutions. And in the case of Met, they've even provided uh, additional research funding to our companies. So I think that there are examples in the municipal space, uh, certainly with Singapore PUB, DC Water and others, where we've been an active partner. On the industrial side, yeah, I, I think just being a California-based organization, we've had the benefit of being close to the Central Valley and, and thinking through the wastewater challenges that food and beverage companies have on the processing side, but even growers like Driscoll's and, and what technologies can they deploy in the field and sometimes in, in land that they don't necessarily own. So I would say it's as much about matching entrepreneurs to these networks as it is about us learning about what their pain points are and messaging them out to our community. Again, I think we've got to have entrepreneurs understand what the customer wants at the outset. And the earlier we can make these conversations happening. So it's not just about a sale or a pilot. It's really, what do you need? How can I make your life easier? That's the kind of conversation that we often have between our entrepreneurs and our tech adopters. You, you mentioned how the landscape evolved during the 12 years of existence of Imagine H2. Today, when you're helping entrepreneurs do you still have to teach them that it's not about the tech, it's about solving a customer challenge? Or is it really something which is a skill which is, which became, if even I know it, it's commonplace? We definitely have to teach that lesson in the application process. And, and certainly of the 250 to 300 companies we see each year, there's a portion of them that don't get that. And if anything, the value that we bring to the sector is telling that subset of entrepreneurs of hey, there's a market that you're getting into, come back when you've identified that beachhead. On the other hand, I think with entrepreneurs that we ultimately select and work with, they're big thinkers, they're ambitious. And sometimes you have to bring them back and say, no, this is the beachhead market that you said you were going to focus on. Yes, you're trying to grow or spread the risk and think about how you get into other sectors, but you're not going to be able to enter three markets at once. And I think on the digital space, this is where we see it a lot. That's where it's very tempting for an entrepreneur to say, okay, I can have a few customers in the municipal side, and then I can go work in you know, industrial water as well. That's a fine line. And, and especially around creating cash flow early on for these companies, it's tempting. And I think our role is to help entrepreneurs understand what the, the pros and cons of that might be. From the companies you have in portfolio and all the ones you're speaking with every year, mm-hmm. do you see a, a pattern in, in where they want to head? I'll just give you my preconception, and so you'll tell me if I'm wrong. My preconception is you hear the stories of bringing water to all, of water scarcity, which is hitting quite hard, and you're thinking, all those people will be lacking water, so I need to help them. And it's people, so it's going to be the municipal side of it. So I would expect more people looking into that sphere. Whereas if you look at the water use and the places where the challenges are probably the more intricate and there's maybe a bit more space for newcomers. It's maybe more the industrial side of things, but you, you might not discover it 
straight away. You might need to, to get an accelerator to open your eyes and, and to bring you to, to the right section of the market. So that's my preconception. Would you say it's somewhat accurate or would you fully disagree with it? I, I think that the majority of entrepreneurs that we end up working with, they've gotten more precise. And maybe that saving the world piece is what's driving them. But you're not going to kind of boil the ocean here. You've got to start start somewhere. And I think that starting in a beachhead and understanding where you can find those opportunities for scale, that's what keeps these teams going. And it's the same for Ignitia that we've worked with that brings tropical weather forecasting to, I think there are over a million small plot farmers in Africa that they're working with to uh, a membrane company. I think what keeps these founders going is that understanding of making progress <laughs> in this space. And that can be very tough if you're going to say, we're going to go reach a billion people. That's just not a realistic starting point. And when you discuss with, with these entrepreneurs, is there something which is a red flag for you where you say, no, if, if that's your argument or that's your reason for being in business or that's your added value, then it's not a good fit for us. First and foremost, we only accept startups that are incorporated as a business or if they're pre-revenue, they have plans to incorporate as a business. So we're not supporting other nonprofits. That's what you know, philanthropy is, is really set out to do. So we really view a successful water innovation business as representing a truly sustainable solution to a water challenge. So we're not about creating more projects. We're really thinking about what's going to be valued in the market that will employ people and solve pressing challenges. So if we're not talking with entrepreneurs that get that piece that, yeah, we will say, see you later. And sometimes the idea might just be so far off base. Yes, we definitely need to think big in the context of climate, but you know, towing icebergs from the Arctic <laughs> We're going to be realistic with an entrepreneur that brings us that idea. And, and we've seen plenty of them. There, there are a lot of people out there trying to do that. And again, I think hats off to everyone that's trying to think of a creative solution. But we are very, I would say, realistic about what we're trying to accomplish as an organization. I made a deep dive on the trilogy on that microphone about towing icebergs which sounded to me like the most crazy idea when I started. And when I ended, I was like, why did nobody ever try it? So I still don't have a religion that. Where I'm heading with that is, how crazy is too crazy? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have a good answer to that. But I, I will say, you know, reflecting on this question with, with our team is, yeah, we would like to be able to take some more risk. And I think we've gotten very good at what we do when it comes to validating idea, act, you know, providing an access to capital. But are there some technologies out there that you know, delve into the space of really you know, big thinking? We're still going to say no to an entrepreneur that's trying to defy the, the laws of thermodynamics or doesn't believe in you know, <laughs> unit economics. So that's that piece of reality we're always going to try touch on. But certainly we've seen companies come through, claim something, and our judging panel says that's just physically not possible. But I also think we've got to keep an eye out for an issue like PFAS, where we're still ways off from having a real suite of solutions that can be deployed in the communities that need it the most. If I was to try to push the envelope here, I'm really giving you something which is written on, on plates and on t-shirts. So it's really lame. And it's this sentence which is attributed to Einstein all the time. And I'm pretty sure he never pronounced it of uh, craziness is, is doing the same thing and expecting different outcomes. So among your advisors, who verifies? I mean, if you come with something which is extreme, thermodynamics was now one example, but really, really far away. I had a discussion on that microphone with uh, Gerald Pollack, for instance, mm -hmm. on the, the fourth phase of water. And he's looking at, at ways to bring that to market and to bring technologies around that. Yet, if you go to, to physicists, they will tell you that they are not four phases of water, they are 18 phases of water, and those are the rules of thermodynamics. But yet, the exception of Gerald when it comes to the fourth phase of water is very different from a physician, which is looking at the table of elements. So some will call it genius, some others will call it being a different kind of thinker, and some others will say it's crazy. Yeah. And you will have to, to decide in which box you put it, and how, what's your process for that? Yeah, I think that we've got to get better about creating those sandboxes, if you will, where those ideas can thrive. I, I think that there's some exciting 
developments on the research side, just from a pure federal funding aspect. So something like NAWI, which we're a part of here in the U.S., a DOE-funded initiative on, on desal and energy, that's we need to be able to encourage that kind of R&D and, and provide the support mechanisms for researchers. I don't necessarily think that's been our role or will be for the foreseeable future, but I think that we can be the right partner when that research starts to show some promise. So this involvement of governments and funding makes for a very good transition towards Singapore, which is mm -hmm. the country known for having decided in the 60s that if they wanted to become what they wanted to become, they had to start with water. And the result is spectacular. And you've opened H2O Asia one year ago, if I'm right? It's actually 2018. So we've, we've been over there for a little while and have run <laughs> uh, three, three cohorts there now. What was the aim of creating something dedicated to that region? And what do you do differently there that you would be doing from Imagine H2O, the, the mother company? Yeah, I think of a phrase that stuck with me very early on in our days at Imagine H2O came from David Stanton, and that's water is a global opportunity at a local market. And I think as we started to evolve as an organization and look around the world for where are those markets that are moving faster, Southeast Asia was just an, a natural one. And we had discussions with Singapore PUB on and off, really from the, the very founding of Imagine H2O. So when the time was right, we set out to build something there that wouldn't just be an accelerator for Singapore, for entrepreneurs from Singapore, but also be a kind of a deployment bridge, if you will, for global entrepreneurs and regions throughout the region. So that's been a different piece to do both the acceleration and the deployment piece in one program that's allowed us to work with very early stage and pre-revenue ideas from local universities and, and entrepreneurs but also be a great resource for a company like Century from Canada looking to deploy solutions in Vietnam. So how do you help you in the same program, those very two different types of companies? Yeah, it's, it's essentially two different tracks, but it's, yeah, it's accelerator resources for regional startups, but more on the deployment side for global ones or you know, growth stage companies that are, that are really ready to deploy there. And that's where we've launched a new partnership with the World Bank called WTAP, where we can provide pilot funding to entrepreneurs working throughout the region. So that, that's a really, I think, exciting piece for us to be able to provide that support with a partner like the bank. You mentioned this global opportunities in the local markets. Do you have further plans to expand your coverage of the various regions? I, I think that's still in the cards for us. And that's really what we set out to do when we started Imagine H2O Asia. But on the other hand, we were reminded that you got to get this right and really and prove that the model can work at the hub or regional level. And I'm very positive and optimistic about what we've done there, but I still think there's a lot that we can be doing across Southeast Asia and South Asia. If anything, I look at our applicant numbers and just see increasing interest from entrepreneurs in India And I think there's a lot more that we could be doing there via our standard programming or something new. So you have three tracks. So we have the Imagine H2O original. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Imagine H2O Asia. And what's your third track? The Urban Water Challenge. That really started in the aftermath of Cape Town in, in day zero. We were you know, working with some of our philanthropic partners on what do you do for these coastal cities that really are on the brink. And it's been a fascinating partnership. 11th Hour Racing is, is one of the, the partners on it, Oceankind being the other. Those are both philanthropic organizations that have a strong commitment to ocean health, but also see the connection between ocean health and, and wastewater. So that's, a, that's certainly a piece of it. But really thinking about scarcity, circularity, decarbonization, decentralization, those are all themes within that program. And the award is up to $100,000 per pilot through the Urban Water Challenge. So it's really become our kind of marquee pilot funding mechanism. You mentioned how Sentry was ticking all the boxes. So what did they do in the Urban Water Challenge? They were actually deploying a solution at the wastewater treatment plant in Sao Paulo and you know, using that program to kind of test out the international markets 
And since I think they've done more of a focus on Southeast Asia, and that's where they've participated in Imagine Show Asia over the last, they were, we were just with them in, at Singapore Water Week a few, few weeks ago. I mentioned in the opening how Imagine Show is always referred as the, the leading water innovation accelerator. And I think it's not only referred to as that, it, it really is that. Mm-hmm. You're 12 years in, in between many other programs mm-hmm. have been launched. Is it all serving the same cause and hence very good news across the board? Or is it competition to you? Look, I, I think the more resources for entrepreneurs in this space, the better. We need to help them win. This is, in general, entrepreneurship and innovation remains an underutilized resource in the global search for solutions. And I think the more that we can do, the better. On the other hand, I'd like to see more coordination across these programs. And I do wonder how many accelerator programs does a startup need to go through? And is there a you know, point of diminishing returns that a founder might be tempted by grabbing more attention and headlines versus you, you, at some point you really got to go operate a business? And again, we learned the hard way early on. We gave some gold stars to entrepreneurs that could win a business plan competition, but running a business was another piece of it. So I really think if we're going to be this is a route kind of helping entrepreneurs win. We've got to be very strategic about where these programs help them and when and make it less confusing. But I know there'll be more programs in this space. And again, I think largely it's a good thing, but I do come back to how does this make the, an entrepreneur's life easier? And, and that's not always the case. What's your long-term vision? Because I had seen when you had 150 companies in portfolio, we're saying we have 150 and we want to have 150 more, which sounded to me like a way to say we're here for 12 more years, but also that there's an end to it. So is it like that? Or what's your long-term aim? Long-term aim is to really take what's been a successful model and and scale it. So I I think our pilot funding is a great opportunity of where that four or $500,000 a year could be a multiple of that. And instead of thinking about 40 pilots, how do we think about 150? So that's a piece of it. We definitely want to keep an eye for quality over quantity, but I do think you'll see us do more on the ecosystem building side and be providing more offerings to the entrepreneurs that we decline each year, recognizing that some of our best companies have applied to Imagine H2O three or four times before they get in. So I think that will be another aspect of it. But I think any good nonprofit should be thinking about its ultimate <laughs> demise. I mean, you're here to solve a market challenge. And if you don't you know, nail it as far as creating a lasting solution, then you have to really question the model. So I think for us, as you start to see a healthier ecosystem for innovation in which an entrepreneur can easily find the talent and capital and customers then there'll be less of a need for this kind of work. But clearly, there's still a long ways to go. And what's your North Star metric for success? Is it imagine making spectacular exits? Or is it this fact that you're now able to to disappear because the challenge you wanted to solve is solved? Mm -hmm. Exits are nice. But I think the North Star there has to be beyond the transaction. And does the buyer actually turn that solution into something that they're scaling across their platform and that they're really selling it and and building the business. So that's on the exit side. But as an organization, look, we're not here to find a silver bullet. We're really here to kind of find millions of acts that people and businesses can take to ensure a more sustainable future when it comes to water. So that's not always thinking big and centralized. It's thinking small. It's thinking about affordability. It's thinking about jobs. It's really looking at the big picture and how do we make these solutions last and not be kind of something that everyone gets excited about and then three years later, it's gone. And really a tricky question to, to close that deep dive. If I'm asking you your favorite child among these 168 companies in portfolio, what is your preferred one? <laughs> We like them all. We like most of them. But no, I, again, just had a really fun time in Singapore working with some of our entrepreneurs there a few weeks ago. And 
I think Mohammed Sheriff Atman from Hydroleap is somebody that I just get really excited about as a founder. Amazing personal story, but an impressive wastewater treatment business that's working with industry in Southeast Asia. I think about someone like Bessie Schwartz at Cloud District, who's really of helping the insurance sector think about risk and flood management in a very informed way. Greg Newbloom from Membrane would be another one. Yeah, he's in the membrane space, but I think has a very interesting take on it. We're often cautious about getting of working in that space, but it's a kind of founder like him that's got a novel technology and solution, but is also thinking, I think, really creatively about the story around decarbonization and and what water innovation can mean. So anyway, those are just three entrepreneurs that have been on my mind a lot lately, but I think that as a collective, I'm really been kind of hopeful about where we're seeing them think about decarbonization in the water sector and how do we kind of solve climate through water solutions. I think your answer is revealing. I asked you which company is your favorite one and you answered with three entrepreneurs. So what matters is really the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. more than the tech, the vertical or, or whatever. It's really that those, I mean, people change the word, not yeah. companies. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think there's some technologies that we've identified and supportive. And yes, there's a good founder, but you also say, gosh, if this worked, this could be big. But more often than not, we're thinking about, hey, is this is this someone that has a real eye for a beachhead and has a believable, incredible story that's ultimately going to attract the team, the capital and the customers to, to scale? And without that kind of center person, it will be hard to do that. Scott, it was a fascinating dive on the still on the surface of what you do with Imagine H2, and there would be much more to to uncover and to unveil. But I think for a first pass, that was well, this really fascinating from my end. I propose you to round it off and to switch to the rapid fire questions. <laughs> All right, the tough ones. It's time for the rapid fire questions. Actually, there's one we're really looking for your answer, but let me start with the first one. What is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Uh, Again, I would point to this growing expertise and capability on the pilot funding side. And both our Urban Water Challenge and the WTAP partnership with the World Bank are, are both examples of where we're just, we're going beyond of helping the entrepreneur build their business, but to really kind of make an impact in the markets that need innovation the most. So when we think about expanding access to innovation, I think pilot funding and our role there plays a really exciting role. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? <laughs> one thing that we've learned the hard way. I think that I think it's it took us longer to build the organization early on than we realized and building a track record in the space because in a way Look, their accelerators weren't commonplace in any sector at the time. Uh, certainly, they were starting to take shape faster in the in the tech space and other parts of Silicon Valley. But I think it was hard for us to be in Silicon Valley, looking around us and seeing the rapid growth in other spaces, and wondering, well, why isn't it this happening faster? So I think that was a tough lesson early on. I'd love to be acting and, and thinking, you know, bigger and faster in the future. But I also think that we bring that sense of reality that we all need in the space. Just out of curiosity, who was your company number one? That first year, two companies that we really helped. One was Fruition Sciences, which was working with vineyards. And they had uh, sap flow sensors that were being deployed in vineyards in both California, France, and, and Chile. Use less water make better wine. That was their value proposition. So that was a fun one to work with. And then WaterSmart Software was an early one from that first year where really thinking about what are the service-based offerings in this space of what can, what's been done successfully in energy and how can that be applied to water? I think that was one of the, the lessons and the exciting pieces of that you know, first company. So, so sorry for the sidetrack. I was curious. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Is there something you're doing in your job today that you will not be doing in 10 years? I think we will be doing less education of the market 
to outsiders. I think we get a lot of potential partners, whether it be from philanthropy or corporate, saying, tell us about water solutions and, and why we need to care. I think there'll be less of that. I think there'll be more urgency and greater clarity around what's actually needed to solve these things. And I think, again, that evolution on our side, more towards actually funding pilots is, is a piece of that, that we'll be doing more of. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? Maybe more of a cautionary one. I, I think that we've been really excited about water as a service and any kind of service-based models. I think that COVID has driven an important transition in that mindset. But I think, again, we need to be realistic about the limits here. And the truth is that we're not seeing a lot of municipalities, you know, going into service-based contracts with startups, although we talk about that happening. <laughs> I also think investors are cautious because they would rather see an outright sale, or some investors would. On the other hand, corporates are, you know, they're going to always want to keep things off their balance sheet. So they, I think there's competing interests and we need to be realistic with entrepreneurs and the sector about what this means. I think long-term, definitely that's where we're going. But the, the pace and the steps that are required to get there, that's where I think there needs to be a real kind of open conversation and analysis of when and how we're going to get there. If you were a world political leader, what would be your very first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? Uh, I think in so many ways, our water challenges are often a crisis in governance. So I, I think we really got to do a lot to clarify policies and in other cases enact new policies. And I think I'm hopeful though, in the sense that water can be a convener. And certainly in this country where we're very politically divided, and I look around the, the Rocky Mountain West, for example, I think that you can see some people coming together from both sides of the aisle around this issue of water scarcity and long-term risk to economies and, and ways of life. So I think that it's going to get harder, but I'm optimistic about what's possible from a policy standpoint. But certainly it's going to take some leadership and some different models and thinking than what we, we've been used to. And finally, last question, would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that microphone? Well, I, I think Greg, Bessie, and Mo, as I just mentioned, all would be I would have great guessed. entrepreneurs <laughs> from our, they just come to mind because they've been top of mind here recently, but happy to walk through the Imagination Show portfolio and see if there's some other great entrepreneurs and thinkers and, and really leaders that should be on this podcast. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure. If people want to follow up with you, where should I redirect them the best? Imaginationshow.org is, is where it all lives. So please come there. If you're a startup, you can register. If you're an investor or a tech adopter that's interested in connecting with our startups, you can do that. And if you're a corporate or a philanthropy, we, we certainly welcome a uh, conversation with you as well. Thanks a lot for your openness. Thanks a lot for everything you shared today. And uh, thanks for the recommendation. But I would, I would love to recommend yourself again to go a bit deeper into that matter. But it was really a pleasure to discuss with you. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, look forward to being on again. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.